Welcome to another episode of The Podvocate. We are here today to talk about things people post online that they later regret and whether those transgressions should live on forever as scarlet letters. From Loyola University, Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. We're joined today by Lee Bonsall. Am I saying that last name right? That is correct. So Lee Bonsall is a labor and employment attorney at Henshaw and Culbertson. Atanu Das, am I saying that right too? Yes, but just please call me Das. Okay, I can do that. Uh, Das is a cyber law professor here at Loyola and Professor Alex Esses, a constitutional law professor also here at Loyola. Esteemed panelists, welcome to The Podvocate and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. A few brief introductions, Das. Can you tell us a little about yourself? Yes, so I'm actually a graduate of Loyola Law School and I've been teaching here for about 10 years, and I teach both cyber law as well as several intellectual property courses. My name is Lee Bonsell. I'm also a graduate of Loyola. I graduated in 2010, and I practice mainly labor and employment law at a firm called Hinshaw and Culbertson. I've been there since law school. I'm Alex Tessis. I'm a constitutional law professor, and I teach First Amendment law. I have books on a variety of subjects including hate speech, uh, history of civil rights, the use of the Declaration of Independence in American History, and I have a new book coming out on the First Amendment called uh, Contextual Theory of Free Speech. Perfect. That is actually a perfect segue into what we're talking about today. Uh, Before we jump in, I want to start by going through a few examples of the kinds of things that we're talking about to provide context for listeners and to ground our discussion. Again, we are focusing on mistakes, stupid things like bad jokes or inappropriate pictures or things done in youth. Although there are elements that overlap, we are not talking about cancel culture. We are also not talking about online statements that are serious, such as a, like a hunter posting a photo standing over a giraffe. For, you know, posting that photo was a statement, not an off-color joke. We're here today to talk about the mistakes people make online, things they think are funny are, or are okay at the time but later regret and how they pay for those mistakes. The most recent case is a guy named Carson King and then Aaron Calvin. So Carson King, he held up a poster during a college football game asking people to Venmo him money for his Bush light supply. Uh, He ended up receiving a million dollars and he donated all of it to charity and then Bush and Venmo also matched those contributions to charity and then Bush sent him a year's supply of beer. The Des Moines Register then did a profile on this college student. Um, He was in in Iowa. Des Moines Register did a profile. He's 24 years old. In their research, they uncovered two offensive tweets that he sent when he was 16. Bush dropped its partnership with him. But in reaction, people ended up investigating this guy, Aaron Calvin, the guy who wrote the article, who himself had tweeted multiple offensive things, and he met the business end of online shaming. People were upset with for what he said in his tweets, but also his hypocrisy and for going after somebody for what they said when they were 16 years old. Another case is a girl named Lindsay Stone. This was in 2012. She posed for a photograph at the Arlington National Cemetery at the um, Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers. And she had a thing with a friend of hers where they were disrespectful of signs. And so there was a sign there that said silence and respect. And so she pretended to scream at the photo and uh, give it the middle finger. She sent the picture to her friend. Her, then, her friend then posted it on Facebook, not knowing that her mobile uploads were available to the general public. 
A month later, that post was discovered. There was a Facebook group that said, fire Lindsay Stone, that immediately trended. And the next day, news cameras were outside of her home when she showed up to work that day at a nonprofit for developmentally disabled adults, she was fired. There is another case of an anonymous per person who prefers to remain anonymous who was at a tech conference. This is a male computer developer. There's a thing called dongles, which attach to both uh, mobile devices and computers. He made a joke about dongles uh, as a sexual reference to a coworker, very under his breath. A woman who was sitting in front of them overheard it, turned around, and took a picture of him. The next day, he was fired and he publicly apologized. He also wrote uh, in Hacker News about how he was the sole breadwinner for his wife and three kids and how awful it was to lose his job. The internet then turned on the woman who took the photo. She was the victim of male activists who found her address, sent her death threats. They found out where she worked uh, at SendGrid. SendGrid was then bombarded with DDoS attacks which I'm sure Professor uh, Doss, mm -hmm. Doss knows plenty about, uh, but it is essentially an overload request for a particular business and said this, the attacks would not stop until she was fired. Sengrid let her go. She said, I cried a lot during this time, journaled and escaped by watching movies. Sengrid threw me under the bus. I felt betrayed, I felt abandoned, I felt ashamed, I felt rejected, I felt alone. Perhaps the most famous case of this is a woman named Justine Sacco from 2013. She worked in public relations for IAC Holdings, which is an owner of uh, Vimeo, OkCupid, The Daily Beast, and other um, online publications. She was traveling from New York to South Africa to visit family. When she had a layover in Heathrow, she tweeted, quote, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. But, and that was about an hour before boarding. No traction between when she tweeted and when she boarded. That's an 11-hour flight from London to Johannesburg. By the time she landed, she was the number one trending t uh, hashtag on Twitter. The Twitter responses range from as follows. Quote, I am an employee of the same company she worked at. I am an employee, and I don't want at Justine Sacco doing any communications on our behalf ever again, ever. Another one from the company itself. This is an outrageous offensive comment. Employee in question is currently unreachable on an international flight. And then the general public got involved. Another tweet, all I want for Christmas is to see at Justine Sacco's face when her plane lands and she checks her inbox voicemail. Another one that said, oh man, at Justine Sacco is going to have the most painful phone turning on moment ever when her plane lands. Uh, she tried to delete the tweet, but the damage was done. She said she cried her body weight in her first 24 hours, that it was incredibly traumatic. She didn't sleep. She said she woke up in the middle of the night forgetting where she was. She released an apology statement, cut short her vacation. Workers were threatening to strike at the hotels where she worked, and she was told no one could guarantee her safety. A journalist at Gawker was the first person to retweet her comment that allowed it to go viral. Uh, he expressed no remorse at first. A couple months later, on an unrelated topic, he used the hashtag, hashtag bring back bullying, and then he was shamed himself to only then later apologize to her. First, let's discuss the legal implications. Once hired, can and should an employer be allowed to fire an employee for cause because of what that employee said online, assuming it had nothing to do with the company? So uh, to answer that, I'll just give a little bit about where I'm coming from. So I do labor and employment law, and I represent employers, and I also usually represent private employers. So it's going to be a different analysis when we're talking about private employers or public employers where there'll be First Amendment rights. So when we're in the private setting, there are no First Amendment rights. There are other laws that might apply to protect employees' speech, like the NLRA is a good example. 
But the baseline premise is that employment is at will. So, you know, both parties can leave it that relationship whenever they want to. So in these examples, um, if the employer wanted to take action against the employee, they, they certainly could. The, the exceptions to the at will premise um, have to do with if you're going to terminate someone because of a protected class, that's prohibited under the law. That would be a termination because of race or gender or something like that or if the termination would violate um, a contract, if there was some kind of contractual agreement between the employer and employee, or if it would violate one of the employer's own policies. There also might be different statutes that might apply, like the Family Medical Leave Act, that might put a constraint on a termination. There's certain tort claims that could arise. But outside of um, those exceptions, it's up to the employer um, to make the determination if they you know, want to take any kind of disciplinary action up to and including termination. And you know, when I'm coming at an issue like that from the employment perspective, I'll be looking at you know, are there any legal implications or risks kind of based on the categories I just went over, and then it becomes a judgment call for the employer. And that might have to do with a variety of factors, reputational harm to the company, um, you know, where in the hierarchy of the company does that employee exist? But it's something that's going to be more of a judgment call for the employer. I agree with Lee on the analysis from the employer side. I guess my thinking about these situations are is more of the First Amendment uh, aspect and whether a person um, being publicly shamed and being um, shamed from a huge volume perspective right you're having thousands of people coming at you and creating emotional harm to you and what I look to is whether maybe the internet companies that um, serve these social media platforms have some responsibility to regulate because I feel that maybe the government in terms of providing some laws or some regulations may not be uh, able to do so and I would think maybe Alex can talk to that of whether there's any laws or regulations that can come into play to f address that aspect of it? Well, I, I mean, really, in a private employer setting, the, the First Amendment doesn't apply. The First Amendment applies when there's a state actor. So that goes to the second part of what Lee said. If, if it were a state employer, then even then, I, there's no basis to prevent the employer from firing the person. Now, you might say as a normative matter, it's unfair to fire the employee because the employee is uh, making these statements outside of the work setting. The at-will employer concept, though, both as it deals with um, public and private employers, will more likely than not allow the employer to act in a way that uh, preserves the employer's reputation. And I don't think that there would be any sort of restriction on the employer from a constitutional standpoint. So really, absent the categories that Lee mentioned, I don't see how the employee under those circumstances would have any sort of means of legal redress, which really shows the how critical it is for each of us individually to be very conscious of what we say online and expect that there is a world listening to us, which I think people often take for granted. Should a person's online profile be evaluated in the hiring process? You know, 30 years ago, if you said an off-color joke at a party, it probably wouldn't follow you to your job interview three weeks later. But if you post it online, 
uh, now and someone, you know, you're a prospective hire, your potential employer's certainly going to Google you. Uh, and so should those, but there's still private thoughts and feelings, you know, should that content be evaluated when you're applying for a job? And, and if so, how far back, you know, thinking about that example of the football fan, he tweeted something offensive when he was 16. And so, you know, now as more and more millennials enter the workforce, the next generation even enters the workforce, things can go back very far in someone's, you know, online profile vault. So should those things be considered? And if so, how far back? So I can see from a, an employer's perspective why they might think there'd be some utility to doing that. We see a lot of risk in doing that because you're gaining all this knowledge about a number of things that may have no relationship to the job. So if you start looking at someone's Facebook page, think of all the categories of information you could delve into. You could see what religion they are, you could see what their sexual orientation is, you could see what groups they've joined. You know, we actually used to give a presentation where we had kind of a mock Facebook page and it had someone who just joined like bipolar awareness group, like all this information that the employer making a hiring decision doesn't need to have at that point. And now you're setting yourself up for a possible discrimination claim because- Just kind of like implicit bias where they're coming kind of thing? Well, it's sort of giving the employer knowledge. So now the employer has knowledge, maybe about religion, maybe about disability, maybe about political beliefs, all these categories. And then they're gonna be making some kind of determination, yes or no, on hiring this person. And um, they, may be, they may be basing it on a legitimate reason, but now there's that evidence exists. And they don't really need that knowledge, I don't think, at the, at the hiring stage. There's, there's other sources, you know, resumes, references, things that would give more legitimate information to you know, determine if the person would be good at their job. But what if you're not looking at someone's personal Facebook page or personal Twitter, but you Google them and you see the Des Moines Register do a story on a tweet that you posted eight years ago when you're 24. Now, would an employer think that's relevant or not? That might be, and you know, that I don't think is really getting us in so much the problem of a protected class, right, and right. it's publicly available. I think mm -hmm. there's something a little safer about that than delving into someone's personal Facebook page, which is like a minefield for all this information about them. Your question is really normative. Should the employer do it I think not. I think it, there's it really the, your question extends to something much much deeper. There was a uh, website that several women started about uh, profiles of old boyfriends, and if you you know if, as long as you knew the name of the person, you could look oh, up yeah. the old boyfriend, and then you could see you know he he would get a rating. Right. And yeah. there was no way of knowing whether his sister rated him or some girlfriend who broke up with him who despised him, rated him. You know, and um, so. Uh, as a normative matter, in my opinion, those are corrupt ways of thinking through things. We're personalities who are diverse, and we play, just as Shakespeare said, many, many parts on stage, and it all depends on the context. And there isn't, you know, there, the way that one behaves in front of an employer is different than one behaves in front of friends and in front of family and so on. And, and those are all authentic ways that we behave. I, you know, it's an authentic way to behave amongst one's parents, and that's different than one way one behaves amongst one's friends. There's not a lack of authenticity there, and uh, there's really just a, a diverse personality. So it's a normative manner. I think it's highly problematic to isolate someone's behavior, which could have in the decontextualized that behavior. But as a legal matter, uh, there are some states now that are prohibiting employers from requiring 
individuals from giving them their passwords before they hire them. That, that I think, is, uh, is a good law. Whether or not that fall, that's adequate under the First Amendment, I'm not entirely sure. Um, in Illinois, there's the Workplace Privacy Act, and so I don't know if the language says for applicants or just current employees. I don't know how far it extends, but for at least for current employees, the employer can't request your social media credentials. So that's the law here. Well, just to clarify, when you say credentials, is that password or is that just, you know, like I have a common name. There's a gazillion Matt Dorans Yeah, I think it says username and password in the act. Wow, okay. Yeah. I do want to follow up the, the other side of that coin, and I've, I've experienced this, and I'm sure Haley has too, in, in lawyer job interviews. They're very concerned about, you know, the feel, the, uh, the, the, the camaraderie that you're going to bring in the culture that you're going to contribute to at the firm or at the, you know, uh, government agency where you're going to work because lawyers typically work very long hours and so a question in potential hires minds is is this somebody I can sit in the office with until 10 o'clock at night on a Tuesday and 30 years ago there was no way to figure that out um, you just kind of rolled the dice and so now you know someone could argue well give, having a window into someone's personality uh, that becomes available through social media is a good tool to suss out whether or not I am willing to hire this person who I'm going to be okay with spending that much time with. So to me, it sort of goes back to my original point. That seems to me to be going down kind of a dangerous path where what does that mean? When you look at someone's Facebook profile, what about it makes you think this is someone that I can hang out with for a long time? And that's, you know, I would get concerned about stereotyping or implicit bias. Like you said, those could all be possibilities. Um, so that's, that's what it raises for me. I think there's other ways to do it. I mean, when I was before I graduated uh, from law school, I had a long summer internship. It was like a trial period. I know I clerked for, during the semester for a long period of time with a law firm. They were able to evaluate whether they could, you know, I could culturally fit in. There are other ways a law firm can evaluate your fit into their law firm from a cultural and personality perspective rather than going through your uh, social media. Also, the you know the uh, Facebook uh, is a mirage of uh, false identity. I remember going out with a group of people, and somebody who on Facebook is very fun, lots of smiles and <laughs> joy, was depressed and extremely down. We but he was using his phone throughout the time. So then we went home, my wife and I. And looked up his Facebook profile. He was telling, he was speaking about how much fun he was having at his dinner. <laughs> we had just come from the dinner. He was down, like I mean, sad, and, and he barely was communicating with us. And but uh, but at the end of dinner, he spoke about how much fun he had. So there, I don't think you 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 can see the authentic personality. I'm not even really sure. It's it, that even the individual fully knows. And and also it seems the the profile is so unfair because. So much of what we say, we can't even remember. You know, I cannot repeat what I just said two minutes ago. I mean, I could probably, I could take the gist of it, of course. And it's, uh, uh, the, what really it comes down to, I believe, is not, it is a bigger, wider uh, uh, issue about the extent to which the social media companies, the private companies, want to keep this information for years and the extent to which they should be regulated. So that goes beyond uh, employer regulation. I just have a comment. I worked in HR for five years before um, starting law school, and so I think a lot of employers now are moving towards 
removing implicit biases as much as they can. Um, but I worked in recruiting, and it was definitely a no-no to look at candidates' um, social media profiles for that reason. Okay, so now we're going to transition with um, relationships between employees. When are employers responsible for online harassment between employees in the workplace? According to the EEOC, the employer will be liable for harassment by non-supervisory employees or non-employees over whom it has control, for example, independent contractors, if it knew or should have known about the harassment and failed to take prompt and appropriate corrective action. So follow up with that, should employers manage online relationships between employees, and if so, to what extent? Okay, I'll kind of take this in two parts. The first is that a point we always make when we're doing harassment training to employers is that the anti-harassment policy applies both inside the walls of the workspace and on social media and it's really sort of the same analysis of the anti-harassment policy applying if you were at the work holiday party you know the the workplace is not just those four walls so there's sort of that point that um, online activity can certainly manifest itself in the workplace and then the employer has the same responsibilities they would have if it did in a you know disruption that occurred during the day between two coworkers. Then you know what kind of um, I get like on a little alarm bell whenever we talk about regulating employee speech between each other and the employer having a role in that based on the National Labor Relations Act. So um, there are Section Seven rights for all employees, not just unionized employees, to engage in discussions about the terms and conditions of employment. And they can do that online. And if they're raising concerns about the employer or anything, having a discussion between them, that's an area where the employer does not want to get involved and regulate that. So I think it's probably maybe not at all what you were getting at, but just the, the way the question was phrased, that's always something that we want to steer clear of. Mm -hmm. Does that change if it were, if it's harassment um, via communication within the company? Like a lot of companies use Slack or Gchat now. Um, if two employees were engaging in a conversation in which one employee was harassing the other, would that change your, your answer change, I should say? You no, know, it would be similar to if someone was harassing someone verbally. You know, it's mm -hmm. kind of the same mechanism where the employee being harassed via text or whatever the format was, you know, should report it pursuant to the policy. If a supervisor was aware of it, then they have an obligation to report it as well. Okay. When an employer should step in, what at which point should they have known about the harassment incident? So you mentioned if an employee reports it, but what about situations um, where, for some reason, the supervisor is unaware, um, but it's been going on for a long time? At which point should they step in? So there isn't liability for employers unless they're aware of the harassment, but you can't have a supervisor putting his head in the sand. So. Um, you know, there's no action the employer can take unless they're put on notice of it, and that's why there are policies with reporting mechanisms and that kind of thing. So that, you know, it's kind of the same standard whether we're talking about online communications or any other type of communication or conduct. In cyber law, there's this concept called constructive knowledge. If employees are using technology such as Slack, Gchat, and other um, messaging tools, that does that create constructive knowledge that an actual person supervisor has not seen their harassment dialogue, but should they have known because they're using employer uh, technology? I don't think that that would rise to the level of constructive knowledge under harassment law. Usually the cases where there's constructive knowledge are where it's really egregious. Like one person has been harassing all these women in the workplace and 
all these incidences have occurred and it's just crazy that the employer would not know that they had happened. Okay. So, I, I mean, I think even with something like that, the employer would probably have a policy in place. You should only be using Slack for workplace purposes. And the, you know, the concern would be now we're using it for things that don't have to do with work. It's causing a distraction and maybe it's leading to things like harassment. So that's usually kind of the way the employer would go about those circumstances is making it really clear that we're here to do work. The communication should have to do with work, that kind of thing. In doing research for this episode, I came across your blog post that you posted in September 2018. So I wanted um, to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners a little bit about that and what we can learn from this decision. Yeah, so I think that was a case where um, there was no actual formal complaint made of harassment, but a supervisor had heard all these racist comments being made in the workplace. And so there, the employer couldn't escape liability by saying, we didn't know, you know there was no complaint made. Um, because the actual supervisor was hearing the comments, they, they you know, couldn't get away from that. Um, so that's sort of like an example in the context of it actually happening in the workplace. I think the same analysis, again, could be applied to any kind of um, online uh, situation. I know there's a case where there was like a online like bulletin board where people would check their shifts and that kind of thing. I think it was for an airline. And on that like virtual board, all these employees were like posting negative comments about this woman and she filed a sexual harassment claim and the court held like that board was a part of the workplace. So like it was very similar to this, just in the virtual world. What should people be free to say online without any fear of retribution? 30 years ago, you could say something at a party and only people at that party could hear it. And if you acted like a jerk, only those people would hear it. And you know, whatever damage to your reputation that may be caused, it would only be through word of mouth. Now you can say something and within 12, 11 hours, you can be the number one trending world uh, trend on Twitter. So, you know, should people be free to say whatever they want? Well, so the so people should be free to say whatever they want, and it's all protected. Uh, there are different laws that govern uh, European there's, and uh, uh, U.S. Uh, enforcement of social uh, media companies and, and companies uh, that uh, retain information and data of people's communication. Uh, there's a really grave problem, but it seems to me that the real problem is with the retention, the use, and the distribution, dissemination, sale uh, of the data through social media networks because the um, words and the statements are actually transmitted and have a long enduring record that goes far beyond the site and the inter the uh, actual media that a person uses the retention of the information is forever facebook claims it cleans uh, people's profiles if they choose to leave facebook but that's not true because at least the la last i heard of it is if you try to wipe your profile clean and then in years later try to reinstate it all that stuff comes back in which is an indication that facebook in fact has not cleaned its server google gmail uh, actually uses deep packet searching so it's not simply it's not only what you want to be out there but it's actually emails and the internal parts of the emails not just the subject line google does deep packet searches it actually searches the actual uh, uh, words that you use inside of the actual message. 
Just recently, Google made an announcement just a few months ago that it would no longer be using uh, the deep packet searching, which again is not just the subject line, but the actual internal portions of the email. But we have no indication that it stopped doing it. In fact, there are signs that Google continues to do deep packet searches. So while a person should be free if you to say whatever he or she wants to, as the way you put it, the in my opinion, the general data regulation, which now uh, uh, GDPR, general data protection regulation that uh, the European Union has, is a better way of regulating these social media companies. That goes beyond just the recipient of the message, where the responsibility of the recipient to retain that message should be far less. If you give that person some information, you should be, you should expect that they might turn around and send it to a whole universe of people you're unaware of, but there should be far greater regulations to, uh, of commercial organizations to only retain that information for a limited period of time that can be defined by statute or by regulation, and that's what Europe is doing. But in the U.S., the First Amendment does not require them to, uh, social media companies, to purge their records of that information. And therefore, they can retain it really forever, and uh, their use is far beyond what an individual can ever predict. There's no way to know what it is. There's the information sold to third parties. Some of that uh, information, as we know from the Cambridge Analytica case in the 2016 election, can wind up in the hands of foreign powers. So my recommendation is uh, uh, to only say things online that you anticipate that uh, other people can use. So whenever you say something, you should be, uh, you should say it only those things that you expect to be publicly known. Um, even with my wife, I, I do not say things online to her that I don't want third parties to know. I have no idea who's going to pick up the information. It, it's a lifetime of carefulness uh, rather than using your First Amendment rights to their full extent, using them in a way that you are uncertain whether that information will get out to people you don't want. That means, and I, and I want to add, for example, people uh, doing uh, sexual poses, sexual videos, I would be, I would never ever engage in it, even if you're happy with your partner having it. It is just too dangerous. Not even even if the partner can be trusted, I don't think the partner could ever be trusted with it. Um, you don't know there who's picking this stuff up on a line that's not even between the two of you. So, uh, I look at this more of uh, from like the public shaming context, uh, context, like the Carson King and the um, woman flying to South Africa, mm-hmm. and the amount of harassment. That, that they got and maybe it was deserved maybe it wasn't deserved but you know I'm not sure one thing I mentioned, failed to mention I used to be an engineer for many years working at, on internet te- technologies and I have probably more faith than Alex in internet companies being their own regulators to a certain extent but the problem I think internet companies have is a lack of education on law and policy and I think people like Alex and myself can help internet companies understand the legal and um, policy implications. It would be very easy for a company, not very easy, but technically it would be very easy from a technology perspective for Twitter to see 
this going viral for one of these uh, examples we talked about earlier in this episode. And once it crosses a certain threshold, they can stop it, right? Don't let it go viral so that an on, so it doesn't explode out of control. That could be something that they could do, be more proactive about because it would be, Alex, please tell me if I'm wrong here from a constitutional perspective, having a law in place that tells the internet company to take out, take down a post could have free speech implications, right? Oh yeah, there's no question about it. You couldn't do it in the United States. The European Union uses a proportionality analysis, a balancing analysis, Mm -hmm. and they can, they do regulate content based on the public policy, they they balance public policy, the interest of the speech, uh, the speaker, the um, uh, whether or not the law is carefully crafted in order to meet the legitimate end of, for example, privacy, and the extent to which there are other out- outlets for communication. But in the United States, content regulation automatically gets the highest level of scrutiny, and it's, I can't imagine that a law that would require, for example, the social media company not to disseminate that information to other commercial entities would with withstand first amendment challenge. So for example, in there through there's a DMCA a digital millennium copyright act pos, uh, provision that says let's say a uh, copyrighted video gets posted on YouTube, the copyright holder can notify YouTube and they have 24 hours to take it down. A similar uh, provision that was uh, analogous to let's say online speech, you know, they want to report to uh, Facebook, hey, I've been a target of harassment. Please take out the her- alleged harassers' posts. And there's a provision that says, oh, they have to do it in 24 hours. That that type of law would have a lot of constitutional free speech uh, yeah, it problems. Yeah, it, right? wor- it would work in the European Union, and it would be found unconstitutional in the United States. Yeah. So see, we have. So that's why I feel private regulation from private companies is our only way to kind of help this public shaming problem and that our our what we need to do is have these internet companies educated enough to understand what these issues are that's what at least from my perspective but is there a way to make it objective i mean you could certainly see an employee at twitter thinking x public figure totally deserved this or even a pri- you know a, a, a private figure a woman flying on a plane who said something foolish oh she deserved it and so, how, is there a way to make that objective? No, you could, I think you could have technology in place that is automated, so that when certain thresholds are of number of retweets, a number, uh, some textual analytics, looking at the phrases, when things are retweeted, for example, art, artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies can be brought into play to try to curtail the online harassment going viral and exploding. I think that I think that's possible uh, from my understanding of the technology. Um, so I think it's possible. I want to go back to what Alex mentioned about individuals being careful with what they um, post online. I think now people understand that, but it wasn't until recently that we've seen the dark side, I guess, of social media. Um, so when Facebook first came out, I think it was, I don't know, early to early 2000s. Um, I was in high school, I believe. And I, 
I think no one really understood the power it had or could have. So what about those situations? How do you think that social media companies should handle information um, that was posted at a time where individuals had no idea that it would be kept for so long or that um, third parties could use that information for their own personal benefit? Again, I mean, as far as First Amendment, there's nothing that restricts these companies to, to keeping. And I'm, I'm much less uh, confident that people are aware of the danger. So Apple Watches were going off and recording people. We're, we're listen, they were listening in to people uh, because the, there was a misfunction in the Apple Watch. This was just in the news within the last month or two. Uh, maybe some of you have heard that the word that was supposed to trigger the Apple Watch to turn on was a fault in technology, whether purposeful or not. And people were saying it. They was picking up people's. Uh, it, it, the, there was a whistleblower. The only reason we know about this is the whistleblower. The only reason we know about Cambridge Analytica is a whistleblower. There could be, in that compromised over eighty, probably eighty-five million people's profiles to the Russian government. The Apple watches. There were individuals, humans listening on the other end. They heard sexual trysts. They heard things they thought were criminal. Uh, they heard all sorts of private communication. I don't think I think people are incredibly naive. I think Siri can turn on. I mean, I, to me, we live in a world where I I am I am much less confident in these companies. I think they have a profit incentive, and their thing is they can Michael Zuckerberg can talk all he wants to about the desire for privacy in Apple as well. Look, there was a, there was something just recently where. Apple had a uh, app inside of its phone, in the iPhone, uh, and nobody was aware of it. In fact, to the extent where the Defense Department was doing research on the iPhone to see, determine whether or not it was a private enough setting, and they discovered that there's this app that was moving data to, the chi to China. So they discovered that in China there was a private company that was acquiring this data. So the Department of Defense asked, what are you using this data for? And the Chinese company just disappeared. And so this is Apple, which claims that it's got uh, this great desire for privacy. And the Apple Watch is the same way. I would be extremely cautious with all of this stuff. You know, the, the Internet of, of Things is, is actually beginning to be even, even more monitoring of everything. You know, it's supposed to help us in our day-to-day -day tasks, but in reality, it's really a it's a method for these companies to acquire greater wealth. That's the way I interpret it. In my class, I asked every every month, how much do you pay uh, for your to Google for your you know search bill or your Gmail bill, right? And everyone, of course, says zero. And the reason we have pay zero for these types of services is because they have our data and they have to monetize it. Now, we can say they, they, they've overreached, but I think you know, they're making all this, providing all these free services to us, all right, and with it, they need to monetize. Now, things like Cambridge Analytica, I agree, is t totally an overreach. But I think there's other things that can be done to limit it. For example, law enforcement doesn't need a warrant to get all this data from these third parties. They just need a subpoena. And, you know, we have all these, you know, Ancestry.com, 23andMe, that have our DNA information. And I'm not sure, Alex, if you know that there was the Golden State Killer was found using an open source DNA website. 
they found a relative of the Golden State Killer because they had DNA evidence from this cold case back from the 80s, I believe. And they were able to investigate the relatives of this uh, person they found through the DNA website. And one of the, I think the uncle of the person they targeted was ended up being the Golden State Killer. And they just found it using a, I believe, a subpoena. All right. And I think there are some, there's some constitutional leeway based on um, some, some recent Supreme Court rulings where we can make some of this information on the internet private, at least from law enforcement, that they need a, need a warrant. But you're right, from a from the whole world, it's hard to keep those things private because it just explodes and goes viral, and this uh, the commercial aspect is too much because these companies need to commercialize this, our data to provide these free services for us. So in part of my research for this uh, episode, I looked back at shaming over history, and it worked historically uh, when done in, let's say, a small town setting when you had your, you know, your sinner in the stocks, so to speak. And as urbanization progressed, shaming couldn't work as well because as soon as the person was out of the stocks, you know, he or she would slip into the crowd and become anonymous again. And so the whole element of I am embarrassed to be in front of my fellow townspeople is, well, they don't know who you are, so who cares? Um, so you know, if, if shaming can't stick to your reputation, then it, it, it doesn't have any power anymore. It's neutered. But if your reputa- reputation can follow you anywhere uh, because the Internet is forever, then shaming can work. Professor Justice, you brought up EU, and I know that the EU has the right to be forgotten or the right to erasure, um, which you know essentially is, and it only applies to Google, but the EU citizen can ask Google, take me down from EU search results, and only in the EU. So if someone searches for you know name of Dutch person in Thailand, they'll still get all of the results. Um, in September, there were, the case was before the European Court of Justice, which ruled those decisions. You know, again, you can take it all off of Google. It seems like the internet doesn't allow mistakes, that even if something offensive was you know, sincere today, maybe, it, it might end up being a mistake in hindsight. But if the state, mistake's never forgotten, it stays a mistake forever. So should people have the right to have their mistakes erased? So the right to be forgotten is, was a project that I assigned to one of my, one semester in cyber law. I'm curious what uh, Alex thinks and Lee thinks about this is, I framed it as a the right to f- be forgotten if it was implemented in the U.S. would infringe on the freedom to access information that we have under the First Amendment for employers to get information on potential employees. And I'm just curious what you guys think is what would not in only in this hypothetical I made, but in general, would it would it work in in, in from employment? context as well as from a constitutional context. It's no longer, the European Union doesn't call it the right to be forgotten anymore. That term continues to be used. It does use it in, in parentheses, so it's called the right of erasure. Mm-hmm. The right of, to be forgotten was developed, uh, it was a, a word that uh, academic, his last, uh, Professor Schroeder was his name, I think it is, he came up with that term. And they've changed it to a right of erasure, which makes a lot more sense, because you don't have to forget uh, it's that the social media company has to raise it. It, it, it does not only apply to Google, it applies to any, there, there's some definition that you get, but it's a social media company. Uh, it, but it, it would apply to any company that, ha, that retains data 
and it requires the erasure of that data within a particular, some set period of time, which my understanding is it's not a uniform period of time now. It's still being, that part is still being developed and that it has to be erased unless it's being used for the purpose for which the, purpo- the, the uh, subject, the data subject originally intended it to be used. So for example, I buy something on Amazon, I don't expect Amazon to be able to sell my information to uh, political parties or to, if I purchase a book, to shoe manufacturers, sock manufacturers. Um, while that is good law in the EU, uh, it is not in the United States, and therefore certain organizations such as Facebook uh, have moved their data from EU servers, such as Facebook in Ireland has have moved uh, uh, a very large number of profiles into the United States so that they can continue to retain the data. So the other thing I wanted to bring up is the Carson King situation where when there is this backlash due to his tweet from when he was 16, he handled it very well. You know, he said he he apologized for the tweet. He understood. He also was gracious to the Des Moines Register by saying he was gracious that he understood why they had to create a pro, write a profile that included it. Uh, he had made a mistake. And because we have this concept of the marketplace of ideas and the so, and social media augments the marketplace of ideas, I think when I brought this Carson King example up to my students in my class, all of them were very sympathetic to him. And I would feel that you know the public at large would also, because he had the, because social media created a voice for him, all right, and he didn't have to slink away into the crowd like, like in the old days, he was able to kind of uh, turn this bad situation into something of a positive sort of to combat it. So the same tool that can bring him down can be his salvation? Yes, mm-hmm. to a certain extent, at least in that mm-hmm. case. So I want to think, talk about where we think we can possibly go from here, given what we've discussed and you know how, what the next step is. Um, President Obama said recently that the world is messy, there are ambiguities, and people who do really good stuff have flaws. And he was talking about uh, the prevalence of call-out culture and uh, being woke, and he called out call-out culture for what he perceived to be its kind of armchair activism, um, that people take pride in um, condemning others online and, and, see, and see that act as doing good. And so my question is, you know, to the, all the people who piled on to the Justine Sackos or who, to the um, Calvins of the world, are they doing good? You know, how do we... We talked about how we can possibly, um, Das, you mentioned, you know, a potential tool, technological tool to regulate that kind of thing. But how, as a collective society, as the, as the recipients and, or participants in, that, in, in those dialogues, where do we go from here? So I think my perspective on all of this is kind of coming at it from a narrow direction of this, you know, employment relationship. But I would say, you know, a lot of things that employers are thinking about now is, banning Facebook at work, taking measures like that. And I I do think it's something related to the shaming issue where all these issues in social media are so ubiquitous now. They come into the workplace and they're a distraction, or maybe it's worse and they lead to something like harassment. So I think that's an interesting thing for employers to deal with is how to recognize that all of their employees are on social media now, but they don't want those issues coming into the workplace. So you're like, we're always saying, 
you know, don't be friends with each other on social media, but is that something the employer can really regulate? And, you know, is it worth it to block something like Facebook from being at work at all? So, you know, I think those are sort of the, the issues that employers are. And then, you know, another big issue lately has been most employers have in place now like a social media policy about what employees can post in terms of like, you know, you can't give away the company's secrets on social media, that kind of thing. And that's something that changes through administration. So under the Obama administration, um, the, the decisions were very pro-employee and very restrictive in terms of you can't tell employees that they can't disparage the company because that could be a violation of their um, Section 7 rights to talk about terms and conditions. So that's another really interesting issue of how you deal with regulating what employees can and cannot say in social media from the employment perspective. Addressing the public shaming aspect collectively is a very challenging issue. But I think being an engineer at heart, it's rooted in the technology. And I think there are technologies that can be used to help this. For example, technologies that are not so um, narrow that create bubbles online, have those technologies be a little bit more broad, that could create, uh, prevent people being in social media bubbles. That's could, I mean, maybe that's too much to ask for from these internet companies, <laughs> but that is one thing you can do, okay? And that all is automated, right? You know, it's just, you know, changing an algorithm to a certain extent. I think from a use point of view, I don't know how other people do this, but I try to game these algorithms, the current algorithms online, by having um, people I follow on social media to be very diverse so that I get diverse um, information. I also get very diverse ads because there are certain ads <laughs> that I get that are um, totally not my <laughs> nature, right? Mm -hmm. Accor accordance to my nature, but other ads I do get because of that. So I can see from a commercial point of view why internet companies would not want, want to do that. The more they expand the bubble, you know, the less they can target ads. Right? right. So there is a bit of a you know, push and pull there. But I think that is one way we could address the public shame, because if you have diverse point of views uh, ex exposed to those diverse point, point of views, there'll be less public shaming going on. There'll be more empathy and so forth. But that's I mean, I don't know how feasible that will be in the near term. But I mean, that makes sense. You're you're basically resting a little bit of control away from the user to say you're not going to be you're not going to have complete autonomy as to who you follow or who you're friends with and what you're exposed to you're, you're, we are going to f uh, force a certain breadth of content upon you but then of course you can't say to Ford we know exactly where potential F-150 drivers are going to be hanging out online so we can target an F-150 ad at them. Mm -hmm. I wonder uh, Professor Sessis had to leave us early, unfortunately. I wonder, though, if he would say that that would run afoul of certain constitutional free speech violations, because just as much as I think you're free to say something online, you're also free to seek out certain kinds of speech. But again, you're being regulated by an internet company and not the government. You're, if it was regulated by the government, then you have a possible infringement of your free speech rights. Oh, okay. Are you serious? That's why I'm saying let it all be done by the company itself. It's a private actor, the government's not involved. They have the ability to regulate your quote unquote free speech online if it, they're doing it, right? 
free speech can only you can prevent the government by regulating your free speech, but private companies can regulate your your speech. So is there room for people to make mistakes online? Um, I want to discuss this from a hiring perspective and just a general perspective as well. I know, Lee, you mentioned that um, some employers will counsel employees and discuss, I guess, um, their mistakes and how they can move forward. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing is always going to be with employers is do they even know what the mistake was online? Like in these examples you guys gave, they were obviously these momentous mistakes that went viral, but there might be a lot of things happening online that the employer never needs to know about and never does know about, and that's fine. Um, and then, of course, it's going to depend on what was the mistake, what happened, does it relate to the job at all? That's really what's going to be key for the employer. Is this something that happened in your personal life that has nothing to do with the job you're doing? Then. Yeah, it's not going to affect your employment probably, but um, yeah, I mean, it's an analysis that's probably a little bit hard to discuss in the abstract. But if um, I think you know, if someone makes a mistake online, doesn't relate to their job, the employer doesn't really need to take any action. So, but Lee, I just yeah. did want to follow up on that in the sense that would the employers look at that as a lack of judgment that could affect their judgment in their job's role? Yeah, potentially. You know, like maybe if some, there could be something that comes to light, and who knows if it's something the employer actually acts on. You mm -hmm. never, I mean, it's, we're all human beings also, you know, so mm -hmm. you have people making decisions, and, you know, maybe it changes the impression of someone. But I don't think of it so much as, like, someone's writing comments on whatever, Facebook, separately from work, and they're private. That's not really going to interact with the employment relationship. What about past mistakes where um, maybe 20 years ago, whatever uh, an individual said might not l be looked down upon, but now it is. Do either of you have thoughts on that? I hate to harp on what happened with Carson King, but I think that way of rehabilitating yourself, and not uh, maybe rehabilitating is too strong a word, but just to kind of put it in context, you know, maybe apologize if it's offensive, that could work, you know, in the you know, trying to use social media to augment your uh, reaction or um, to say that I made a mistake, you know, please, you know, I'd like to move on. I hope you all can move on and so forth. You know, I think social media can be used is a double-edged sword. It can be used by both uh, parties. Yeah, I agree with that. Kind of, kind of the same thing, I would think. You know, if there was some applicant who had some kind of skeleton in their closet from a long time ago, that's sort of what the interview process is for, and um, there would be an analysis of, does that really matter? Does it really matter for this position that we're hiring for? Going back to um, President, former President Obama's quote about armchair activism, how do we differentiate what's necessary, reprimanding, and what's bullying? So some of the situations that we've discussed so far um, – obviously are a little bit different in terms of severity. There are certain things online that could be considered fighting words or threats and so forth, right? And so that, and if they were regulated ever by a law, they would be saying that we don't have free, protect, free speech protection in like inciting a riot, all right? Now, I understand this is the cyber world, but those types of words would mean that we have moved on from just simple protected free speech to unprotected free speech that is harassment, bullying. When we're using words that are considered 
from a legal point of view, unprotected speech because they're harassment and bu bullying or fighting words. That's the phrase that's used. I think we are, we've moved into an area of bullying. Um, to follow up on that, if something starts out as necessary reprimanding, does the nature of the internet inherently allow that necessary reprimand to devolve into bullying? If so, how can we safeguard against it? Can you give me an example? Um, so I guess with the example that we talked about with Justine um, Sacco, so I think that that can arguably be an example of someone reprimanding someone for making um, racist comments. Um, but then it turned into, it exploded into bullying. I think a lot of people would say that, categorize it that way. So I guess our question is, what what's the line there and how do we stop that? I'll, and we, say, I'll say one thing with that one. I thought it was interesting that the employer jumped in right away to respond and kind of make it like clear, like, oh, like we're not involved with this. And I think that's probably an instance where you know, there's all these competing interests when something like that happens and an employer's in crisis mode. And I'm sure that was like the PR plan and maybe not the lawyer's plan. You know, like, mm -hmm. I, like is that really necessary? You know, you could deal with it later. They, they probably, the PR people, the company, people looking at the company's reputation probably saw the writing on the wall. Like, we got to deal with this right away. So that's, you know, I think kind of interesting. I, I think that because the internet is but by its nature can lend itself to going viral it's it is a very blurry line it, and from your question i think you we all know that i think it's hard to say that once you've gone viral that um or a simple reprimand will not will it will not satisfy the the the, the public right and unfortunately that's the way the i think the world is we live in works but before it's gone viral, I think that's where a reprimand would be appropriate. And then I think the PR people and the uh, legal folks at the company can come in and kind of do damage control. Mm -hmm. And actually, there are a lot of practices now out there, and it could be, this could be tangential to your practice as well, where there's this digital planning and uh, response type of practice where you can you plan for something like this to happen and immediately within minutes react so that it doesn't get into a viral situation and become like a backlash of bullying, and then you can reprimand it. So I think one thing that you can do is have companies be prepared for something like this to prevent the online bullying backlash, mm -hmm. and so that it becomes just a necessary reprimand. Do you see what I'm saying? You're talking about crisis management? Hmm? You're talking about for a company, you're talking about crisis. Yeah, management? you do. So the employee is not out there alone battling this, right? They have a digital crisis planning and response behind them, all right? Unwittingly, maybe, unknowingly, maybe, mm -hmm. that they know. And this was a big company. IAC Holdings is a yeah. big company, right? So if they had a plan in place, as soon as they detected this, they could have responded and, you know, prevented the backlash. And so then. A termination may not have been the only option. It could have been just a reprimand. Oh, to kind of like let the public know we're dealing with this. Yes. And she will be, you know, we're the parents here. We're going to, we will reprimand our, quote, child. It's okay. Something like that. That could help in this situation. Hmm. I wonder how, do you think that would work in the other situation we described with the woman who was attacked by male activists and sent all the DDoS attacks to SendGrid and then, you know, said these will not stop until she's fired and SendGrid fired her? So, you know, from a technical point of view, I think SendGrid could have 
technically stop the denial of service attacks. Uh, for some reason, I think they, there was something else going on. I think um, they just, I think they didn't have a good digital planning and response. Hmm. And if they had one in place, they could have handled it a lot better. All right, they seem to be knee-jerk reactions. Okay, we have this denial of service attacks coming in. Even if we stop those, our PR is going to go down, and so we need to fire her mm-hmm. to just get away mm-hmm. the problem. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, do you guys have any final thoughts you'd like to share? I do want to say one thing. Please. I just wanted to say that these the thoughts and opinions I've shared here are just my own. They're not <laughs> any other person's and, or a company's or uh, entity's opinions. I'll adapt the same disclaimer. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Das, Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for coming on The Podvocate. We loved having you. Thank you. Thank you. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Alritz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman, and our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. And thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue DeNovo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.